Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. You may hear grunting lacrosse players in the background because we're doing this inside the Woody Hayes Athletic Center on Wednesday after we interviewed Ohio State assistant coaches. Uh, the lacrosse team is in here. We do not think a full-fledged lacrosse practice will break out while we are currently positioned uh, on a table at the 10-yard line of the indoor football field. However, if a full lacrosse practice would break out, that would be pretty interesting, guys. I'm not moving. So uh, lacrosse balls are pretty hard. I would prefer not to be hit with one, but I'm not moving. Well, I have my back turned to these guys, so you're going to have to... Heads up. You know what, yeah, we're going to do that the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're going to do Buckeye Talk. It's Doug Maurice, Bill Landis, and Tim Bielek, your Cleveland.com Ohio State coverage team. It's going to be a little bit shorter podcast. I have a middle school track meet to get to. Um, but we want to wrap up spring because we just talked to all the assistant coaches, save for Zach Smith, uh, on Wednesday about their position groups. And we want to ask and try to answer like a burning question at each position group. And then we'll get to your questions. And again, another good round of questions from you guys. You can always send those to us. Uh, the best thing's probably the, the Twitter handle at Buckeye Talk Pod. But you can also follow, uh, the three of us on Twitter at Tim Bielek, at Doug Maurice, at Bill Landis25. Let's start with the defensive line. Who talked to Larry Johnson? Tim. I, I caught up with him, yes. And one thing I want to know is the interesting position change at the beginning of the spring was Jay Sean Cornell sliding outside to the fourth defensive end spot. He said that he's going to stick there. He's done it. Larry Johnson's like what he's seen out of Cornell, former defensive tackle, drop the weight, fit into that role. And now the pressure is going to be on him to hold off Tyreek, Tyreek Smith and Tyler Friday who are coming in to try and take that spot, earn their way in that rotation. Is, are they going to play a fourth defensive end very much though? Like how big of a deal do you guys think last year? Obviously they played four defensive ends all the time and then even played Chase Young as a fifth defensive end. Is the fourth defensive end spot that big of a deal this year? I'm going to try to do math, and I'm not good at it, so you can stop me if this sounds wrong. I'll write, I'll write the math down as you talk. Okay, so La- Larry Johnson said during the spring uh, that Nick Bosa played about 40, 50 plays per game last year. Okay. And Chase Young said after the spring game that he's going to play about 50, 60 plays per game this year. So whatever Chase Young's number is, I'm going to assume that Nick Bosa's is that or greater. So let's operate under the assumption that Chase Young and Nick Bosa are both going to play about 50, 60 snaps. In my head, that doesn't leave an opening to rotate four guys at least as evenly as they did last year. No, and it would be a mistake, I think, to do that. I think I agree with you. I think it's, I mean, comparing either Jay Sean Cornell or Tyreek Smith as a true freshman as the fourth defensive end to 
who the fourth defensive end was last year, which is like Jalen Holmes, who's going to be like a fourth round draft pick right now. Yeah. I mean, it's not close. So I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. I think they rotate three mostly, and the fourth guy is like a very occasional sub and then gets lots of good action in the second half of blowouts. Yeah. And I don't, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I could also see him sneaking in the middle and add on Rushman packages so you could have some common, so you, I'd rather have Cornell inside more than Cooper because I feel like Cornell's got more size to put in there. So you could have theoretically Young and both on the outside, Draymond Jones and Jay Sean Cornell on the inside and turn all the four of those guys loose. That's a good point. And they're never going to have four defensive ends on the field, I don't think. This no. fall, that was a big deal the past couple of years, the Rushman package, but that's because they had those guys. Draymond Jones is going to be on the field on passing downs inside at tackle, and they might have three defensive ends. They can play Bosa, and they can play Bosa inside and put Cooper and, and Young as the two ends and have Bosa and Jones inside on passing downs, but it's not, it's not like you need a fourth defensive end for the Rushman package. So I just think... The fourth defensive end is is not that big of a deal. So I asked this question because I did not talk to Larry Johnson at all. Um, who who are the who are the defensive tackles that are going to matter outside of Draymond Jones? Who's the other defensive tackle that's going to get most of the snaps? Is it definitely Robert Landers, or do we have any reason after spring to think that somebody else is going to get a lot of snaps? Are they going to rotate? But but who's who's the third tackle? Do we think if if Jones and Landers are the top two? That's a good question. I mean. Didn't Larry Johnson answer that question today? I was not at him for defensive tackles, but when I looked at... Um, just there for the end portion of yeah. the conversation. Just, God, Tim Tim is such a front runner. <laughs> oh, I only write about ends. Nobody cares about tackles. I just write about Chase Young. Go ahead. Well, when I look at what Ohio State, you know, their defensive depth chart, uh, Davon Hamilton, when we got a chance to see him in practice, who's running with the one some. You also have to look at Haskell Garrett, the sophomore from Vegas. Um, Tommy Togiai, the freshman defensive tackle, first member of that 2018 class to get his black stripe removed. So there's competition, I think, for that third defensive tackle spot. But you didn't actually hear Larry Johnson say anything about it today? I was, I would, I wasn't at Larry Johnson at all. I would guess just on the way they did things in the spring game, the third guy is Davon Hamilton right okay. now. But I think, you know, I don't know how set in stone that is. I, I do think, and Antoine Jackson is a, is a Juco transfer who was not healthy enough to play. So I think he could be that guy. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. and I do think, like, I thought Tommy Togi, I looked really good. And I, like, I know we, we write a lot about black stripes and we talk about it a lot. And I think it is possible to overstate the importance of that a little bit. But a guy getting his black stripe removed in April of his freshman year, I think is a pretty big deal. So I wouldn't be surprised if he actually plays this year. All right. Austin, Austin, Austin Mack was the only other guy to do that, I yeah. believe. So, and he played, didn't he, as a true freshman? Not as much as we thought he was going to play. Though. Okay. I take it back. I mean, we thought Austin Mack was going to, like, come in and be in the rotation. Austin Mack had, like, three catches. He was great on the punt team, though. Tommy Togia is going to be a gunner on the punt team. That's that's a scary thought. A 300-pound guy running down at you at full speed. I would love nothing more. I'm looking up how many catches Austin Mack had on... Uh... You're on the wrong page. This is recruiting page. Oh, man, this is recruiting page? That's confusing. There you go. That's what you want. Uh... I got it here. Two catches, 15 yards. He yeah. played in 12 games as a freshman. That's a lot. I don't Tom... care how many games he played in. Kid, what he did. Tommy Togia is also going to have two catches for 15 yards next yeah. year. He's going to be the new red zone tight end. Linebackers. One thing I'm interested in, and I would—I don't know if I've talked about this. I've had two conversations with Bill Davis this spring, and we didn't yell at each other. So I don't know if Bill Davis. Oh, is... I thought you were getting into because there was a time like he was walking away, like you were sitting down, and like he looked like he was like peacocking a little bit, and then you stood up. I was like, oh man, it's happening. Oh, for real? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, Bill Davis. I don't know if Bill Davis like knows that like I'm the guy on the podcast who like criticizes him all the time. You know, like I didn't like. 
as opposed to like Hugh Jackson. I didn't like say to his face, like, I think you're bad at your job. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, Bill Davis is here. We'll see how the linebackers play. You know, I didn't think the linebackers played great last year. I think he's certainly partially responsible for that. He keeps saying things. So anyway, if people were wondering, like, did I get into it with Bill Davis? No. Um, but he keeps saying things like, it's up to me to make sure the right guys are on the field. If a guy doesn't develop, that's on me. I've got it, you know. So he, like, keeps, it's kind of oddly, like, he keeps taking responsibility Maybe he just wants to take responsibility in my presence because he knows. I don't, I don't know. He probably doesn't know who I am. So there's two questions that I had for Bill Davis mostly as we, as we sat down with him. One is, and I didn't get an answer on it, but it's like, I just, I said to Bill Davis, everybody keeps talking about tough Borland back in September. There's a big difference between September 1st and September 30th. And he just said, like, I don't know. He said, I've been around guys with Achilles injuries, and everybody is so different. Some guys are back really fast, and some guys take a while. And then everybody says that Tough Borland is going to be back fast because his name is Tough. Um, I do think, and I talked to Tough Borland's parents at the spring game just to say hello, um, I do think Tough Borland is like a, a do-it-right kind of guy, and a lot of guys here are that way. But the thing that matters is, like, do you do your rehab the right way? If they tell you, you've got to do this every day, you've got to, like, are you doing it? I'm, Tough Borland seems like the kind of guy, like, who's going to do his rehab. So then that would perhaps portend that he will be back quickly. But I did not get an answer on that in terms of, like, what September means. The other thing that I'm most interested in at linebacker is Baron Browning, Baron Browning, Baron Browning. Does he have to be on the field? And I asked Bill Davis, how do you lean as a coach when you have a decision of like a steadier veteran who knows what he's doing and a younger guy who flashes, who might make more mistakes, but also might make more big plays? And Bill Davis said, you have to do what's best for the team, and that might change week to week. Hmm. Like the kind of offense that you're playing that maybe, you know, I don't know. So my, like my question is, well, what does that mean for Penn State? Does Penn State, when you play Penn State, which is a game that might like have national title implications in late September. Do you play a veteran because you don't want to make a mistake? Or do you play a younger playmaker because you can't beat mistake? You can't beat Penn State just trying to not make mistakes. So I don't know, but I am a little reticent to, I, I don't know, like if Bill Davis is going to pull the trigger on Baron Browning as much as I want him to. Like I want Baron Browning out there if Baron Browning is this guy. And I'm going to write about this. We're starting Buckeye Takes, which is writing like we talk on the podcast. I want to do one about Baron Browning and Ryan Shazier, his true freshman year in 2011 with Luke Fickle. Ryan Shazier like, was a crazy man. He was so good, and they would not play him. Every, I, every week we asked, why isn't Ryan Shazier playing? Is he going to play more? Is he going to play more? And they kept playing veterans. And it was like, what are you doing? And it's like the, the season is like going south anyway in 2011. Why aren't you playing Ryan Shazier? And like the, Luke Fickle like wouldn't pull – Luke Fickle's a linebacker's coach. Like they wouldn't pull the trigger on it. And I'm apprehensive about – and we saw it again with Von Bell. Yeah. When they wouldn't play him in 2013 as a true freshman. Baron Browning's a sophomore. James Laurinaitis won like the Buckus Award as a sophomore. I want to see Baron Browning on the field, and I'm not sure if Bill Davis is going to play him or if Bill Davis is going to go with three more veteran guys a little more often because they're safer. So I didn't get an answer from Bill Davis, but that's what I wanted to know. We talked a lot about Baron Browning, but I don't know which direction they're going to go. Is it? I mean, because 
I was wondering if there was actually some kind of separation between Baron Browning and the rest of the guys, at least athletically. And even Greg Schiano talked a little bit about it, too. He's like, we're happy with everybody, the linebackers. We don't know who the guys are going to be, just yet, but we're happy with everybody. So I don't know, like, is it possible for as much as Browning flashed in the spring game, and I thought he did. I thought he, he moved incredibly well, and it was noticeable that he moved differently than all the other guys who played linebacker. That maybe he's just, I don't know, not consistent enough in spring practice to, to – separate himself in the way that we think he might have done? I mean, Bill Davis said he had a good spring. He, he did say when I was asking about these young guys that spring ball is so important for that, that you've got to develop them then. So uh, maybe he was leaving some bread. Like, he, he thought Baron Browning played well in the spring game, you know? So I don't know if he was leaving some breadcrumbs about, like, you know, this guy this guy is developing. Um, but, but when you have Tough Borland, when you have Justin Hilliard, the, the main thing is it does seem like, Hilliard, Justin Hilliard and Baron Browning are both middle linebackers right now. When Tough Borland comes back, I don't think Baron Browning's going to be a middle linebacker anymore. Yeah. Like basically someone asked if, if Tough Borland hadn't gotten hurt, would Baron Browning still be outside? And he said, yeah. So I think, I think when Tough Borland is healthy, Justin Hilliard's the backup middle linebacker and Baron Browning is back outside. So. I don't know. Like, well, is it, am I am I too concerned about this? Or I think if this team's trying to win a national championship, and you have a five star linebacker who like can make plays that can. Jerome Baker played as a sophomore. Now Jerome Baker, but he wasn't going to. He wasn't going to, and Dante Brooker got injured. That's another example. A lot of times, I don't want Ohio State to be afraid of putting a supremely talented young guy on the field because he still makes some mistakes. Because a lot of times you figure it out along the way in the games a little bit. And if he's not, you're not going to lose to Oregon State because Baron Browning made a mistake. Yeah. You know, but I also think sometimes, I think it takes a certain kind of assistant coach. Everett Withers wouldn't play Von Bell. And then Everett Withers wasn't here anymore. And Urban Meyer was saying, like, why aren't you playing Von Bell? So I asked, I asked Bill Davis, who makes the decisions on this? He said it's a collaborative thing. I don't know. Like, I mean, if Greg Schiano and, and Urban Meyer want to play Baron Browning, they're going to tell him to play Baron Browning. But, that's but also, gonna... you, you, but also, they don't know as much as the position coach knows. They don't know what the guy's like in a meeting. Yeah. So the position coach's word matters a lot. No, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with that. But I, like, so Urban stood at the podium after the spring game and said like Baron Browning by name. He didn't mention many guys by name, but he made a point to say, I thought Baron Browning looked good today. Like, how much does that matter? Because I know we always talk about how Urban doesn't micromanage the positions like outside of quarterback, especially on defense, especially on the defensive side of the ball. I don't know. Like I think here's I thought Urban saying that was interesting on a couple levels. One is it's interesting because he's the head coach and he said it, but the other is I think that he and Greg Schiano think a lot alike. Yeah. So if Urban's saying that about about Baron Browning, I would have some level of confidence that Greg Schiano thinks the same thing. Okay. And wh- what do we compare Ohio State? Pro- program-wise to Alabama. Alabama has never been afraid in the Nick Saban era to throw younger players out there because they're better athletes. If you're going to hold Ohio State to the Alabama standard, then there's no reason Baron Browning should not be playing as a sophomore, that they shouldn't find some way to put him out there in any situation. It's a wide-open position. Like there's there's not there's not very many established guys there. Tough Borland the only is like the most established guy, and he's hurt. Malik Harrison's pretty established. He played a lot last year, too. Yeah, but, but I thought it was in, like... In, Certainly not. Cons- I, I think he should play, and I think he will play. But I don't think he was so good that like it's it's obvious that he's going to be starting. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things to me. It's like I don't I don't quite want to say this. Do I want to say it? Nah, 
Is anybody here? Can they hear us? Uh, no, I think, so. think you're good. Whisper. Uh, so I've made the point. We made the point previously. Like if a, if a true freshman's playing on the offensive line, that's a failure on Ohio State's part. When Michael Jordan started as a true freshman, it's it's all the credit in the world to Michael Jordan. Um, but he should not have been put in that situation. He was, and he handled it wonderfully. And he's like going to be a great player this year for Ohio State, and they're going to reap the benefits of him having played as a true freshman. That's that's not ideal. On the other hand, when you have a true sophomore like Baron Browning and a position group that is unsettled, I think if he's not playing, I think somewhere in there there's a failure of the program. That you brought in this kid as one of the top top ten recruits in the country, and it's not that he's blocked by three older guys who are all going to be in the NFL next year. There's opportunity there, and if he's not being given the chance to seize it, either A, you didn't develop him the right way, or B, he's ready and you're not giving him a chance. So I, I think if Baron Browning is not playing a major role for this defense this fall, even though he's only a true sophomore, I think something, I think there's some disconnect somewhere along the line. I, I don't disagree with that. I just want to have this said um, as we talk about like what we think Baron Browning could be because he was a five-star and top, whatever he was, top 10 national player. Justin Hillier was a five-star and like a top 30 national player, and the only reason he hasn't played more is because he's torn his bicep three times. So I think Browning is very talented and, and probably a little more so than Hilliard, but we're, we're talking about two five-star guys in this conversation. All right, secondary. I think the most interesting thing in the secondary is the off-safety position opposite Jordan Fuller, and should they, will they find other alternatives there? I asked Alex Grinch about that. And I don't think it's going to happen. We like the idea of one of the corners being at least thought about at safety, um, but I don't know that it's going to happen. And you asked Greg Schiano about it. I asked Greg Schiano, like specifically, I said, yeah, I said Jeffrey Okuda's name. I said, would you ever give a guy like Jeffrey Okuda a look at safety? And Schiano basically said no. He said he thinks Okuda is going to be an elite corner. Uh, he said that he likes the guys they have in that competition opposite Jordan Fuller. It's just that nobody has taken that spot yet. I asked him specifically about Isaiah Pryor and that how there, I think, was some assumption, at least on the outside, that he would be the guy who's to step into that role and be the starter. And he was the first team safety next to Fuller. Um, but Shiano said, like, if he had done that, then he'd be the guy and he didn't do it. Like, I think he was happy with Pryor's spring. I think he was happy with a lot of the guys' springs, but no one was great. And that's the problem. So... He did not leave the door open to Okuda being in the mix or any other corner being in the mix. Um, and he even kind of backed off a little bit on the idea of one of the incoming true freshmen, Josh Proctor. Or, really? Or Mark, Marcus Hooker being in the mix. But I also just think like he wasn't going to, he didn't want to say anything that could like divulge like the tiniest bit of information about the position. He just said like, you know, you can't tell with freshmen like they could come in here and be far from home and miss their home and miss their girlfriend and miss their mom and then have a struggle in camp, which is like, yeah, of course that's true. That's true for everybody. But Urban Meyer has talked about Josh Proctor and Marcus Hooker. Yep. And they're excited about both those guys. And, I, yeah, I don't – if it's the second week of August and there isn't a guy among the safeties now who has flashed to a point that they're starting to feel comfortable about that spot, I think they're going to have to look at someone like Jeff Okuda or Sean Wade or pick a cornerback, Tyreek Johnson, because they can't, I don't. You can't keep just like plotting through camp and not have a guy you feel good about. And you can't, I don't think, be experimenting once you get into the second or third week of the season. And Alex Grinch said that like the bar is high. He said if the bar was lower, she honestly said the same thing. You could put out a lot of guys, and I'd be like, yeah, we're great. But like the bar is high, so so because the know, bar is Malik Hooker. Well, yeah, right. I mean, it's it's it, it, and Von Bell. It's just um, 
I don't know. They just, they have options and they, uh, every coaching staff always talks about best 11, best 11. And I just think that when you think about the best 11 defensive players to put on the field this year, I think, I think three of them might be corners. And I know you're going to rotate, and I think maybe four of them are corners. And I know that you're going to rotate those three guys through two starting spots. But if, if, if you're ending up putting a safety out there who's your 18th best defender, I just think it's worth opening your mind. Maybe it doesn't sound like they're doing it. They do keep talking about Proctor. I think that's the guy to watch. I think, I think of all the incoming freshmen who aren't here right now, I know like there's Tarada Mitchell and Teron Vincent and Kayvon Pope and there's a lot of guys, right, that mm-hmm. that are are of interest. I think the number one guy who's not here right now to watch for the fall is Josh Proctor. Yeah, and I agree. I'm also talking to Alex and she did have some praise for Amir Reap. Obviously, you mentioned corner moving to safety. He did that months ago, putting on weight. We saw him at the spring game, put out a couple hits. He had a nice one on Master Teague. You know, praising Reap's development, and as this goes on, maybe he's a guy to watch. You know, true corner moving over, putting on the weight to become a safety. Obviously, it's a big transition moving from covering one guy to essentially being responsible for quarterback in the defense. So I'm curious how that's going to be handled. But yeah, the longer this goes, I think the more a guy like Josh Proctor will eventually find his way into that discussion. Question from the Jordan Steele: What are your thoughts on Sean Wade's performance in the spring game? Um, who watched the defense in the spring game? Uh, Me. Bill did. Is it, and that's part of it because I think I Sean I think Sean Wade's development factors into this because yeah. if if you yeah. feel like you only have three corners you can rely on in Kendall Sheffield, Damon Arnett, and Jeffrey Okuda, then you're not messing with anything. If Sean Wade if, is at the point where you feel like you can rely on him just as much, and you know what, Marcus Williamson made some plays when Dwayne Haskins was trying to get the ball to Jalen Harris a couple times, and Marcus Williamson got in between and batted some balls away. Yeah, I think I think if you're going to move a corner to safety, you would have to have four corners you love to entertain that, and that means somebody other than those big three developing, and Sean Wade would be at the top of that list. Yeah, I, di- I didn't talk with Tavor Johnson on, on Wednesday, but just from watching the game, I thought what I thought was really impressive about Williamson is that he's the guy who got beat on that nice touchdown throw from, from Haskins to Jalen Harris, and then on the, like I think in the very next possession, Haskins tried to go deep to Harris twice, I think, on the same drive, yep. and Williamson broke up both balls. And I thought that that showed, I mean, it's a spring game, but that showed a little something to me. That, and they always talk about like short memories and stuff like that. Like, that was it. Um, and Sean Wade broke up a pass in the end zone early in the game, too. So I saw enough from both of those guys to suggest that, you know, with the summer of, of development and then through, through camp, that, that one or both of those guys could elevate to the point where they feel comfortable playing them. And now you're talking about, if you have five corners you feel good about, you're not going to play five corners. That's nearly impossible. Um, but then that opens the door for some shuffling. Yeah. And Sean Wade, of course, had the only takeaway in the game. Oh, yeah. Yep. Good yeah, pick. The pick was really nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, again, a redshirt freshman, but he showed some showed some nice ball skills that, picking that pass off. I, I, It's, again, the question of if you're going to put him at safety or how you're going to work that around. They do. Ha- the good thing for Ohio State in this case is they have a lot of options on that cornerback room that can create a lot of flexibility. They already moved one to safety. It's going to be interesting to see if they move another over there in the next few months. And I think you could move a guy and move him back, too. Like, like yeah. I, you know, I think Sean Wade and Jeffrey Okuda are going to be like the starting corners for Ohio State at some point. So I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to lose that forever. Again, Damon Webb was a really highly rated recruit as a corner who got moved to safety 
and, and wound up being a good move, I think, for him and for Ohio State. So they've moved corners to safety before. I think you could move a guy, get him on the field a little bit more and bring him back, and then they could talk about all the things. Oh, he had safety. He got a chance to see the field and look at look at the game a different way. That's only going to help him now that he's back at corner or whatever. They can spin however you want. So, um, But I do think Sean Wade is a guy to watch in the preseason. Again, he, he redshirted last year only because of injury. Mm-hmm. This is a super highly recruited guy, almost as highly recruited as Jeffrey Okuda was. Um, I, th- I think he is a guy to watch in the preseason, and I think how he comes along could have an effect on the entire secondary. I think there's no reason to expect that he won't be really good. Um, and I think... He sounds like he did what he needed to this spring. I think watch him in the fall. I want to go as we shift to offense. We're going to touch on special teams for a moment. Eric Bronstein, E. Bronstein. We, we touched on this, I think, a little bit before, but um, the NCAA, I think since the last podcast, or at least was it last week, with the kickoff change, will the kickoff rule change alter our kickoff strategy at all? Does somebody want to explain the deal with the kickoffs? And what we think it means for Ohio State. So now when you fair catch a kickoff, it's anywhere inside the 25-yard line, right? The yeah, ball, the yes. ball, The ball will be played. You can fair catch a ball on the four, and they're going to put the ball at the 25. Anything that's fair, fair caught inside the 25-yard line starts the drive at the 25. So the obviously the impact that it has on Ohio State is Ohio State prefers to do that sort of coffin corner style kick where they get a lot of elevation and try to drop it inside the five-yard line in the corner and have everybody flood that zone. And they've been very successful kind of last year, beginning of the year aside, at creating a very advantageous uh, field position for Ohio State's defense, pinning teams inside their own 10-yard line. But now when they kick that ball into the corner, the guy can just fair catch it, and they're going to get it at the 25. So I don't know. I don't think I, – I, I was thinking about like I, I don't know if there is a workaround for Ohio State. They like to do that, and I, I – can see why they like to do that because for a couple of years they were the best team in the country in terms of opponents' average starting field position. Now it was kickoff coupled with a really good punt team, but I don't. I, I just I think they can't do it anymore. I don't. I don't know what the alternative is. I just think you kind of bite the bullet and what you did so well for many for a couple of years here, you can't do it anymore. Who is an expert on the kickoff strategies of all the major college football teams? Tim. Anyone? Tim. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what anybody else does, but my initial inclination was that this could have, this could affect Ohio State as much as any team in the country because Ohio State's whole deal is they want to force you to return it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think a lot of people in general, you think about kickoffs the opposite way that a lot of times it's like, oh, well, we just want to kick it in the end zone and not let them return it. They want you to return it. And they want you to return it, catching it, catching a high kick pinned in a corner at the three-yard line. And they think they can tackle you like before you get to the 15. And many times they can. And this is over. Knowing when, when you're an opponent and you know that Ohio State although they gave up a 100-yarder to Saquon Barkley last year, has historically been, and, and they were, I think, really good a couple of years ago. I don't think we've also talked about their kickoff coverage problems. Mm-hmm. They haven't been as good maybe lately as they were a couple of years ago. I think I think it helped them win a national championship, frankly, when they had like all these elite guys, and it was like their kickoff coverage, they did as well as anything they did. They called them the piranhas back in the day. If you, if you, they have taken the teeth out of the piranhas. <laughs> if you're an opposing team... You tell your returner, 
if you if it seems like a high popped up kick and you catch it anywhere inside the twenty five, fair catch it. I just don't like don't under, return it, and uh, that's it. Under what circumstances would anyone return a kick now? Other than it being just an like, incredibly short kick, like a bad kick, like a bad, or like, or if you think you have like an an absolutely elite return man, if yeah. it's like, listen, we have Saquon Barkley, we think Saquon Barkley has a pretty good chance to get out past the twenty five, given the right kind of kick, and given maybe a bad, you know, yeah, I don't, I, I think it's possible. Does this make sense? What was the thing? Oh, because Ohio State, like the whole thing last year, like didn't have a punt returned against them until like, the Michigan game. Until the Michigan yeah. game, could Ohio State not have a kickoff returned against them the whole year? It's possible. possible. Yeah. I mean, I th- what I think this rule does is essentially it's the closest thing to eliminating kickoffs that we're, we have in college football. We're yeah. one step away from just straight up. You start the ball. You start every time at the twenty-five yard line. No more kicking. And you know what? I'm fine. They're unpaid amateurs. Risking their brains on every play. I think there is data that shows a lot of injuries occur on the kickoff. Um, you know, it's not like we have 100-yard kickoff returns all the time. And this doesn't eliminate it. If you feel like you need a 100-yard kickoff return to get back in the game, then you still can try to do it. So it is. I think it might be the right the right balance between not eliminating the kickoffs and just saying everybody starts at the 25. You're keeping special teams in the game, but you, I think, also are vastly limiting the collisions of teenagers running into each other at full speed for no money. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to complain about it. It's just like it's it's not. Some people are complaining. About oh it. no, I know, I know, yeah. but it's not. It's it's a significant change for Ohio State. Yeah, that means no more coffin corner kicks, I think, because you don't want to risk the shot of that ball going out of bounds. Another thing I think that's significant, a small part of it, is like when you get the ball, when the when the kickoff's dead, I think the play clock starts almost immediately, 40 seconds. I don't know. So I, I think it? something on those lines, like it's a, it's a clock that's meant to expedite, you know, how quickly you get on the field. So Oh, okay. Offense. Ryan Holbrook at Ryan H449. Everyone wants to talk about putting in both running backs at the same time. What about double H backs on the field together? Campbell and McCall double reverses. Mm. They played <laughs> Paris Campbell and KJ Hill together at times last year. Yep. They absolutely had a set that was, I don't know how much they used it, but they had a set that was four wide with two outside receivers and two H backs. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like like that look, and then do the little mesh route crossing route mesh meshy mesh mesh, mm-hmm. and mesh McCall and Campbell. And, yeah, and they're both running or, little patterns like seven yards past the line of scrimmage. They mesh each other, and then you throw it to whoever's more open. I'm in favor of anything that puts your best playmakers on the field at the same time, and McCall and Campbell are both top five playmakers in the offense. The one thing that would be even better than that, I I literally just thought of it. If you have your Tay Martell package, you have McCall. And Paris Campbell up both out there, and you have some version of, of an RPO combined with tunnel screen concepts for either H back, a tunnel screen mesh RPO concept. That way you can take advantage of both guys' speed. You can run your RPO, which Tay Martell did really well on Saturday. Again, I counted five really good zone reads that he had. I don't think it's going to happen, but you could do a lot of things to create a lot of space very quickly by doing that. Can you put 14 guys on the field at one time? I was going to say, hear me out on this. <laughs> 11 H-backs on the field. <laughs> Who's your best blocking H-back? He's the left tackle on this play. Um, Would well, it be better than that one cold special teams play where they lined up like nine guys away from the ball, 
a wife of the ball is just a center and a snapper, and then oh, the yeah. guy lost like, their face. Yeah. yeah, and then they got called for a penalty for it. Even worse. What? Uh, what? As we move on to the offense, what is our belief in sort of like the creativity of Ryan Day to utilize the talent in the best way possible with the routes they use, with the plays they call? Um, on a scale of on a scale of one to a hundred, what is your belief in the? And I not I guess not. I mean, I'm using Ryan Day as a stand-in for the Ohio State offensive staff, the offense we're going to see. On a scale of one to a hundred, what is your faith in their ability to creatively use their talent? Uh, one point three million. Is that how much money Ryan Day is making? Oh my! Yeah, <laughs> that got real. I just don't like. In addition to title change and a whole lot of money, I think Ryan Day was promised some creative freedom in the offense. I don't like it's Urban Show, and that's never going to change. But like, <coughs> certainly, I think as close to like Tom Herman as Ohio State has had since Tom Herman left. Now, like the competition is Tim Beck and Ed Warner, so it's like not not that great a competition. But we saw Tom Herman come in here and like really be able to put his finger, put his stamp on the offense and I think Ryan Day is going to get to do the same thing. Now I don't think they're not going to be doing crazy stuff like flea flickers and reverses. Like they're going to, but I think they're going to do things to be creative in getting the ball into the best player's hands, which like as simple as that sounds is not what they have done over the last couple of years. I'd say 88.22. Uh, no, re- no, no, wait, 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 wait. You can't go to a hundredths place on your percentage. Okay. I don't know that we've ever, have we allowed two decimals? On this no. podcast, I don't think you've never if not you're gonna, allowed if them. You're gonna, no, well, no, no. This is not out. a two decimal kind of podcast. <laughs> we are barely functional. I, I can't even figure out tips and that kind of thing. So we're not going. If you want to go eighty-eight point, you are you got to decide eighty-eight point two or eighty-eight point three. I'll just stay eighty-eight point two then. Okay. Continue. The, re- the reason I think <laughs> that is like doing all the quarterback passing charts, whatever. I got a chance to really break down a lot of concepts, a lot of different routes. We we saw the mesh route really get introduced. And then the the plays off the mesh route, like, for example, Johnny Dixon's big t- first touchdown catch against Penn State was a mesh turned into a streak down the yep. hash mark of the field. I thought that was creative. There was a play when Dwayne Haskins came in the game against Michigan where it was almost a counter it was almost a counter play action where Dobbins start on the right side of Haskins, move to the left on a fake, and then scramble back to the right, and that was just a pass in the flat that got him eight yards. And then in the Cotton Bowl, I could I could probably name ten of these. I'd I'd love to do that anyway. In the combo, when they put two, they put Dobbins over in the backfield finally together with Jake JT Barrett. It was a reverse to Paris Campbell. So I there's creativity there. I'd love to go back in and just look at some of the most creative plays they had last season. In fact, I probably will do that at some point. Write that down. That's a Tim story for the summer. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think mine's pretty high too. I think one of the things that I think maybe Ryan Day can do. Like Tom Herman and Urban Meyer love to tell stories about them like yelling at each other on the headset about what play to run. I don't know if Ed Warner and Tim Beck and Kevin Wilson, and you talked about like who are the candidates to be most like Tom Herman. Kevin Wilson was in there too. I don't know. And Kevin Wilson's a former head coach. But but I I don't know if Ed Warner, Tim Beck, and, and Kevin Wilson, like if Urban said, let's run this, if they'd say no. Let's run this. Yeah, yeah. And and Urban, I did a story last year on the fifth year anniversary of the the 
Kenny Guyton-led comeback against Purdue that finished with the two-point conversion call, the pass to Jeff Hireman that forced overtime, and, and they won that game to stay undefeated in 2012. And Urban Meyer, like, loved retelling the story. And the story is Tom Herman yelling at Urban Meyer to run a play. And Urban Meyer wanting to do one thing, and Tom Herman saying, no, no, this will work, this will work. And I think when you work with Urban Meyer, it is important. Put it down. He's got it down. Coaches stand up to Urban. I think you have to be able to do that. Yep. When you are Urban Meyer's, God, i got to ask him about this. When you are Urban Meyer's play caller, you have to be able to stand up to him, both in the moment and during the week, argue your point, and win some of your battles because I think he, I think a, he wants you to do that because I think he believes that if somebody is smart enough and confident enough to argue with him and persuade him, that makes Ohio state better. And so I think if urban, I think, and I do think urban as much as he is an, I think an offensive genius is fair to say he has helped lead the, this era of college football. I mean, Nick Saban is a defensive genius. Urban Meyer is an offensive genius. Mm -hmm. Urban Meyer is on the Mount Rushmore of the spread era. Yes. I do think at times he can use, I want the hand, I want the ball in the hands of my best player as a crutch. I think we saw that. I think in 2013 in the Big Ten title game against Michigan State, Tom Herman lost the battle. And they ran Braxton Miller on fourth and two, and he got tackled. Um, I think you want to have a fight with Urban Meyer. I think you want to win some of them. And I think, to your point, Bill, of all the coaches that have been here since Tom Herman, I think it's just – and I don't know this, but I think you get the vibe from Ryan Day that he's willing to do that. And I don't – he's making Mm 1.3? Yeah, I think that's what it is. I think it's, is I think it's like one million, like that was one, about a million straight up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull not, it up. But you're not paying Ryan Day a million dollars to not express his opinion. I think the title edition, I think the Rays, and I think that they fought to keep him when he had an offensive coordinator job offer in the NFL shows their belief in Ryan Day and should give Ryan Day confidence. And I think if he wants to be creative because he thinks it's best for the offense, but it's also going to help him get a head coaching job, I think he will win some battles with Urban Meyer that I think maybe haven't been waged or haven't been won in 2015, 2016, and 2017. And I think that will be good for the Ohio State offense. Yeah, you need to have that creativity. I think that's what we've talked about before, getting younger minds into the coaching staff new ideas to proliferate, and I'm curious where the creativity of Ryan Day really shows itself more in year two than it did in year one, because year one brought the Meshaw concept. I think we were all just, you know, amazed by the fact that they're bringing the, they brought the passing game into a little more of a modern yeah. style. Well, I'm blown away by the idea of Ohio State doing something that every other team in the country does. Well, I mean... No, it, I'm not, I'm not, that's what it was. That's, well, yeah, yeah. It's, and, and then, and then doing what you, you expect great offensive minds to do. Take what you, take what's been working for you and build off of that. Build counters. <coughs> because as soon as someone figured out something you do, you adjust. You make a change 
And it's just part of the continued back and forth between an offense and a defense. I'm curious with Day's new pay raise, with his title change, how that affects play calling on a game day. Day gets up to like 1.2, 1.3 with the retention bonuses, but the base is 1 million. So I, I'm 1 I, million percent confident. <laughs> I love a good retention bonus. Yeah. Wish I had one. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I think in journalism, they have, uh, get the hell out bonuses. <laughs> they don't have retention bonuses. Good question from Scott Duda before we shift to the offense. Of all the players on the current roster who is most likely to attend a Heisman ceremony yeah. during his career, and you can't say J.K. Dobbins or Dwayne Haskins. I didn't like that question because he took away the obvious answer. Well, that's what we do. Yeah, that's what yeah. we that's what we try to do to the coaches. Yeah. I mean, also, I have, I have... this tees you up to say. Yeah, the answer is Tate Martell. Yeah. <laughs> you wanted to say it anyway. Whether it's, you you yeah. were going to feel like I can't say it. I can't say Tate Martell instead of J.K. Dobbins. That would be insane. However, you're free. Yeah, it's Tate Martell. Uh, I don't even know. Yeah, Nick, not, Bo- Nick Bosa. <laughs> attend Heisman ceremony. Well, I mean, I think yeah. that's that's an interesting. It, 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 Nick Bosa this year, Chase Young next year. Are they the type of defensive game changers that could? Get to New York. Like, didn't Ndamukong Sue get to New York? Yeah, was, yes. was he the last one, or did Jabril Peppers get to go? Jabril, Jabril Peppers Jabril got to go, but Jabril Peppers, when you're a secondary player, you have to do something else. And, like, Malik Hooker was never going to get to New York. Jabril Peppers got to New York because he was in the back seven, but he also did a little bit on offense and was a return guy. If you're a defensive lineman, you can just, like, attack the quarterback. Yep. And be dominant and get there. You're never going to get there as a safety or, or as a corner. Charles Woodson didn't get there because he was a corner. He got there because he was everything. He was a great corner. But if he only played corner, he wouldn't have won the Heisman. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, take out Haskins and Dobbins, and then that gets really hard. Then you're guessing. and the- We're guessing. Bill, Tim, I mean, you've been here long enough. Every single thing we do on this podcast is a guess. Well, no, I mean. I Often mean, uninformed. Yeah, I mean, guessing in the terms that, like, you know, your top two options are gone, you're, it's like picking a name out of a hat. No, it's not. In some ways. I mean, okay, I picked uh, I, I picked my name out of a hat. I got Malcolm Pridgen. <laughs> oh, well, no, it's not picking a name right. out of a hat. Well, I mean, I would go DeMario, I guess. Because okay, that's a good one. I mean, that's a good answer. I don't know how much he's going to play next year with Paris in front of him. If, as you and I alluded to, Doug, we're both kind of on the same page of this. KJ, probably he'll probably moving outside as a receiver to free up DeMario to be the number two to Paris Campbell. I think that's something that should happen. And being the number one returner, especially on punts where he's going to have chances of return versus kickoff, where I don't know if that's going to happen that much unless Urban has a lot of trust in DeMario to give him kind of the green light, so to speak. He's going to have to put up some big return numbers to really put himself in that discussion, I think. But you want a wild card one? Go with DeMario. Chase Young, Chase Young thinks he should have had six sacks in the spring game. I think it's possible that the Chase Young 2019 college football season is a crazy person season. I think it's possible. Like 15. I actually think it might be next year only because. That's what I, oh, you mean, you think it'd be 2018 because Bosa's because here? Because of Bosa, yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing too. They take, like, Joey Bosa was the third pick in the draft and is awesome in the NFL and did not have a crazy person year his final year because he was triple teamed and teams get rid of the ball quick. Yeah. Yeah. And now with Bosa and Young, you, you can't triple team. You can really only even double team one guy. Would you play Chase Young on offense? Yeah, just not a quarterback because that's where Tate plays. Yeah. Put him in a zone read situation with Martell at the goal line. This is, uh, this leads into a question that I, I have an answer for. Um, 
Scott Duda, and it's Chase Young related. Talent is there clearly to win it all. But Urban, Urban always talks about culture. You all are around the team to see chemistry. QB uncertainty in 2015 made the team tight. What's this team's culture? Are there enough leaders to keep them on track? Hmm. I witnessed a little moment, and I took a picture of it. And I didn't tweet it because I want to save it. Because I don't, I don't just want to tweet it out to the world and have all the Twitterverse get it for free. Yep. I want to save it for our loyal Cleveland.com readers. We talked to Chase Young and Dwayne Haskins after the spring game. They're both from Maryland. Dwayne Haskins is a year older than Chase Young. And when they were done with interviews and before they like sort of headed out, they just like what got together and just had like a little, hey, what's up, man, kind of moment where they were talking a little bit. And I was just sort of standing there and taking a picture and just thinking like, yeah, that, that, I get that. That looks pretty good to me. I think this might work. I think the culture of this team is that there is a group of second year guys and a group of third year guys who, when they had all those veterans last year, all those fifth year seniors, all these guys who have gone to the NFL, the JT Barrett group, right? I think there's a group of guys who are dying to make this their team. I think Nick mm. Bosa thinks that. I think Chase Young thinks that. I think Austin Mack and Dwayne Haskins think that. I think Thayer Munford thinks that. I think Jeffrey Okuda thinks that. I think Kendall Sheffield thinks that. I think there is a crop of second and third year guys who want to get this program back on top. And I think it's possible that there is going to be like a like pretty young, confident culture of this team that could really be a good driving force in the fall. Which should be different from past years under Urban, right? Like there's always been a handful of seniors who you knew without a doubt it was their team. And that's not to say like the seniors on this team, like Terry McLaurin, Paris Campbell, um, Brady Taylor is a senior. They don't have many of them. But like those guys are, are good leaders and they'll be captains. Um but there's not, like, obviously J.T. Barrett aside, like, that was his team. But even, like, Taylor Decker back as a senior, Pat Elfline back as a senior, Billy Price, Chris Worley, Taekwon Lewis. Like, you knew it was their team. And even before like, the 2012 guys, and they had a lot of good seniors, too. That is not overly present on this team. So I am. it is interesting to think about, you know, the kind of, I don't know, different edge, if you want to call it that, that, that a, a youth youthful team can bring to Ohio State. And we've talked to Young, and we talked to Munn for a few times, and you get the sense talking about those guys that they're – you know they they got a great straight ahead focus that Young understands. That, you know he has got even though physically he look we've said it on time he looks like a guy ready to go in the NFL. He knows he's not. He's he's just focused on what's in front of him. Very humble, confident but humble. And I think that's the right kind of attitude you want in a guy like Chase Young to really lead this defense. Let's move to the offensive line. Greg Stadrawa spoke for the first time this spring. The offensive line coach finally met with the media on Wednesday. We had missed him during the spring. And the number one question of that group was, is Thayer Munford actually truly the left tackle? And the answer is yes. Like I said, I, I asked him direct, directly. I said, you come out, do you come out of spring with Thayer Munford as your left tackle? And he said like pretty much was like, Oh, he's about to say that maybe Isaiah Prince would be it. But then he just said like, yeah, it's him and Josh Allaby, which is like, no, it's not. It's so Thayer, like Isaiah Prince is staying on the right side and Thayer Munford is going to be the left tackle. And that changed, like, at some point during the spring, Greg Stu Drawa said that 
I think he might have said like after the first practice, or at least it was very early in the spring, that he just wanted to throw Thayer Munford over there on the left side, just to like see what it looked like. And he said Thayer Munford told him it felt good. Um, I think Strudrawa liked a little bit of what Munford looked like over there. And then there's the obvious comfort level with Isaiah Prince, who has played two years at right tackle. It makes sense that maybe while he wanted to be a left tackle and all the things we talked about after the spring game, that there is a, a, a different level of comfort with him staying on the right side. So I think there's a bunch of things that went, in, a couple of things that went into that decision, but Urban said like, oh yeah, they've been moving back and forth coming out of uh, during the spring. Greg's do draw what was a little more definitive that Isaiah Prince is going to be on the right and Thayer Munford is going to be on the left. Is that are we okay with that, or is there any red flag with that? Uh, I think there's like uh, there's some red flag to the idea that Thayer Munford has never played left tackle in a real game. Um, and like Isaiah Prince hasn't either, but at least Isaiah Prince has the playing experience. I think there's going to be some expected learning curve for Thayer Munford once the real game start. Um, he has not, he didn't rep at left tackle through the entire spring. Strudrawa said he repped at left tackle a little bit last year because Jamarco was, uh, Jamarco Jones was injured during camp, but there's nothing in the way of meaningful snaps at left tackle for Thayer Munford. And then they're going to throw him out there on September, whatever it is against Oregon State. And that's going to be his first chance. So I, I'm, Slightly apprehensive, I guess. I would be slightly apprehensive about starting a true sophomore who's never done anything meaningful at left tackle. When, we, when I got a chance to go back into the spring game, uh, looking at some of the stuff he did, uh, other than the one play where Chase Young really blew him up, blew around him to get the sack, which let's be honest, he did that everybody. I thought mm. Munford did a lot of good things for a guy who, you know, again, shifting over from right tackle where it was on the two deep last year to left. So watching that a little bit gives me a little confidence you can do it. I'm, Still very surprised that they went ahead and made that move because, again, we walked in assuming that it was going to be Prince at left tackle and Munford at right, and then they flip-flop on us at the spring game. And I'm going to do a much deeper dive into the film, re- really focus solely on Munford and how he holds up. But if you do pretty well against Chase Young, who we can already say who's going to be a really a top-five pick probably in the 2020 draft. Yeah, and really high pick in 2020. If you do well against him, you should be able to do well against anybody. And that, that probably makes challenging against Oregon State at Rutgers much easier in comparison. If it was anybody other than the most highly praised member mm-hmm. of the team in the last 12 months, I'd be apprehensive. It makes me want to look up when's the last time Ohio State's left tackle was a first-year starter. Because, again, they, they've really used... they used, Marco. They, oh. So no, that was an easy answer. So that good be, answer, Bill Landis. So that would be twice in three years. Ohio State will have a first-year starter. But even, but even, I, mean, I just want to do left. I want to do left tackle history because you answered that question and blew that story out of the water. <laughs> but even like Jamarco was like Jamarco went under left tackle training for two years. Yep. Everybody knew he was going to be the left tackle when Taylor Decker left. Taylor Decker made it his job to get Jamarco Jones ready. Jamarco Jones made it his job to be ready to be the left tackle. For two years, that's all he worked on, and that's not the situation Thayer Munford's in. No. So, so I'm 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 curious about this, but um, Thayer Munford is a beast. Everybody says it, and so I, this is not one of those. I'm curious, but this is not. If you made a list of like the top five worries for top five worries for Ohio State in the fall. Mm-hmm. The five things that Ohio State fans should be worried about entering preseason practice, I would not put Thayer Munford at left tackle on that list. I might. Okay. I'm, I'm with you. You are the offensive line writer. I, like, it's not, 
And it's not about it's, or, not, it's not about Thayer Munford. It's just about new young guy X. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I buy what they've said about Thayer Munford, and, and we have to because we really haven't seen him play otherwise much. Um, but yeah, it's not. I think it's easy to just like, oh, they say he's awesome. He's playing left tackle. That's fine. Like I'm, I'm not quite there just yet. Okay. Question about the offensive line. It's a good question. I'm not sure we can answer it. I haven't watched the spring game again. Have you watched it again? Very little bit. All right, Tim, quarterbacks. any any inf- any answers that require actual information, then we'll yield to Tim. <laughs> peak, at Matt underscore peak two. I am not the only person that caught Ohio State running the counter plays again, the ones like we did as we made the championship run. I do hope it's a consistent thing because it worked extremely well then, and we have so many talented backs. We... My answer to this is we talked about this. We've danced around it for a while. You had a conversation with Billy Price about it last year, I know. Just the idea of in 2014, the one thing they had were talented, young, athletic guards in Billy Price and Pat Elfline. And they used that, and they had those guys working it, and they did a job making holes for Ezekiel Elliott. Um, the one play that Mike Weber ran 63 yards on Saturday in the spring game, I, 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 I think there were some bad linebacker fits where guys were out of position defensively. And there were a couple, there were about four guys who screwed up on that play defensively. But Malcolm Pridgen at left guard also took Jaron Cage and just moved him 20 feet to blow open that hole. Um, what do you think about this idea of this run play? being a big factor for Ohio State this season. I'm just watching one from the Oregon game now and feeling nostalgic. Um, I like anything that gets uh, the the guards pulling and the center pulling sometimes and getting those guys out in space a little bit. I think it's when Ohio State's offense is at its best. Um, and we saw how effective it was pairing that with a downfield passing attack in, in 2014 when Cardell Jones took over. So um, it's not surprising to me that they would want to get back to a little bit more of that, and I'm not – trying to spin that as like another thing in Dwayne Haskins' favor because I think Dwayne or Joe Burrow has improved enough as a downfield passer that it can be effective when he's in there too. Um, but it's just like Ohio State's offense at its most explosive. And it's an obvious thing to say. It's just when they're making you defend the entire field, which like their quarterback did not allow you to do that the last few years. Um, so I like it. I'm in favor of it. I, like, I think that's, that's when Ohio State is like fun to watch when they're doing that stuff. I think, I think with Dwayne Haskins, they're more inclined to do it because if you have Burrow in there, then you're more inclined to run a little more zone read RPO action than pure. I don't comments. know if that's true. Sorry to cut you off. Don't worry about it. But I don't like Joe Burrow is not, he is more mobile than Dwayne Haskins, but I don't think that like the idea that the quarterback run will be any more part of the offense with Joe Burrow than Dwayne Haskins, I think can be overstated a little really? bit. Really? Yeah. I think I disagree with like that. Like as, as I've been thinking about it a little more, like I don't. You don't think they could run Burrow 80% like they ran JT? I, would, I think they could. I don't think they will because he's a better passer. Interesting. And, and I don't know if Joe Burrow is going to be the guy who like JT Barrett on third and one. You, you knew for a fact he was going to get you a first down almost every time. Yeah, like he doesn't like he doesn't. Maybe he does have that, but I like we said, JT was so good at it. I don't think we can say definitively that anybody on the roster can do that. The one thing I think I would disagree. It even it's maybe not about JT. It's just I think Joe Burrow looks like significantly more natural in the zone read than Dwayne Haskins does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why I think if he was the quarterback, they I think they want to do that, and I think Joe Burrow looks like he can do that naturally. And I just don't feel like Dwayne Haskins looks as natural doing it. 
I just think the days of like <coughs> double digit carries for the quarterback, unless Tamar tells the quarterback, are dead. And I, I feel like huh. that's I feel like unless Martellus is sorry, that's the way it should be. Maybe. I don't know if I agree. I, I would make a bet with you that if like Joe Burrow was a starting quarterback, he'd average double digit carries. I'll make that bet. I mean, I don't think we'll have to see it yeah. take shape, but like like eleven, not nineteen. But I think it's such a part of what they do. And I think it's one of those again, if you're running the zone read, if they have the zone read on the offense. And the defense is taking away the tailback all the time. The quarterback has to keep it. We talked about this a lot last year with like, oh my God, why is JT getting all these carries? And like JK Dobbins isn't. And it's like, well, listen, man, it's not our fault. I just think that that would still happen if the, cause I think if Dwayne Haskins is the guy, they're going to remove that. And they've talked about that you can run the zone read where the read for the quarterback is either hand it off or then throw it in an RPO. So I don't yeah. think Dwayne Haskins will have as many carries. I think if Joe Burrow is running that offense, you still keep a lot of those reads as a keep for the quarterback and the defenses will force you to do it. Or you can make it like the newfangled triple option where the throw is the third option. I mean, I don't really know anything about football. But I, I find I, I like I'm interested by your point. I don't think your point is. I think it's possible that we've made. It seems like part of your point is that we are talking about like Dwayne Haskins and Joe Burrow, like they're completely different quarterbacks, yeah. and that they're actually maybe a little more similar. And that if we think like Dwayne Haskins is a pocket guy who can't run, and Joe Burrow is like JT 2.0, that's not exactly right. Yeah, I think like. Dwayne Haskins has a higher upside with his arm than Joe Burrow, I think, and Joe Burrow is a more mobile quarterback than Dwayne Haskins. But I think we maybe entered the spring, and a lot of people, I think, entered the spring wondering like how much the offense can be different depending on who the quarterback is. And I think the answer is not that different because I think there is – and because it, it didn't look different. When we watched the spring game, I didn't think they were running a different offense with Joe Burrow than they were running with Dwayne Haskins. Yeah, and, and I, it would, if Tate Martell was a quarterback, they would run a different offense. But, like, the offense is changing because JT is gone, but it's changing because Joe Burrow and Dwayne Haskins, I think, can do a lot of the same things. Well, sorry to interrupt you there for a second, but sorry, listen, we'll listen, fight later. Listen, this podcast is about interrupting. I don't want anyone apologizing to, any, uh, anyone, apologizing to anyone else. Mm-hmm. And if you guys were doing it right, in the middle of me explaining this, somebody would interrupt me. Yeah. Well, I feel like I, about it. I feel like a polite. I'm trying to be a polite person, even in a podcast form. But even when I I did it, I got a chance to do the two passing charts for Dwayne Haskins and Joe Burrow over the last couple of days, and even looking at them, there are a lot of similarities to them. Not a lot of intermediate throws. It was either all deep or within ten yards of the line of scrimmage. And what's yeah. interesting about that, Burrow actually had a better deep ball passing percentage than Dwayne Haskins, which it, which is weird if you think about it. I'm not like. Well, I, I don't know. We just dove into the quarterback talk. Well, and I have a thing to say here in a minute. Is it about people giving us crap about what we have to say about the quarterbacks? No, no, no. I want. It's going to make podcast listeners angry, but I hope in a good way. But go ahead. I think uh, people are putting too much stock into like the completion percentages and the kind of throws that were made in the spring game. Uh, I do think there was a little bit in Dwayne Haskins, like, check this out. Watch how far I can throw this thing. And I don't think he would actually play that way. Like, he didn't play that way against Michigan. He had the one deep ball to Austin Mack that he had to make as was third and long, but he had some really nice crossing routes to Paris Campbell and KJ Hill. Um, good on time throws. I thought good pocket awareness. Like, I get it. He didn't look all that great in the spring game. He made some excellent throws and some not great ones. And Joe Burrow, I thought looked really good, but I am like the spring game, the spring game maybe changed my opinion of Joe Burrow a little bit and put him on more even footing with Dwayne Haskins, but I'm not coming. I'm not putting 
a whole lot of stock into Dwayne Haskins being 9 of 19 in the spring game and not throwing the ball in the middle of the field. I like Dwayne Haskins also had like a 40-yard ball that he put like on Terry McLaurin's fingertips that yeah. it was a half yard away from being a completion. And I almost feel like that should be completed. Like I think the – I mean it's like, listen, like the quarterback put it up there. You beat your guy. Like you've got to get to that ball, whether you jump for it or run under it or like, again, Devin Smith catches that. Yeah. Like I thought that was like it wasn't exactly a drop, but I thought that was like a should have caught. Yeah. What's your quarterback thing? We have a lot of quarterback questions. I don't want to do any of them. <laughs> I got to leave soon. Oh. Yeah. And we have to have a topic for like next week's podcast. I I think our podcast next week should be like a final assessment of the quarterbacks from the spring, and we'll save all of our quarterback questions. And we'll take more quarterback questions, and we won't talk about anything but the quarterbacks. One more quarterback wrap-up. Yeah. I'm on board. Yeah, I don't want to have to shoehorn it into like five minutes. so Because i got a track meet. Yeah. So you running the 100 today? I am running the 100. Uh, Make sure you I'm stretch. running the 10. <laughs> so listen, so if you asked us a quarterback question, we're going to answer it next week. And in the meantime, we're going to run through the rest of the offense. I want to talk about tight end quickly. Luke Farrell is the tight end. I talked to Kevin Wilson about it. Kevin Wilson was getting a million quarterback questions and said, like, does anyone want to ask me about the tight end? And I was like, I do. Luke Farrell's from Northeast Ohio. (laughs) Luke Farrell won the job. It was natural progression and also this kid having a great spring. They love him as a blocker. He talked about Marcus Baugh's shoulder injury last year, I think, affected him as a blocker. I think Marcus Ball also is a catch-first, block-second tight end, which is fine. Every tight end has something to do a little bit better. I think Luke Farrell is a block-first, catch-second tight end who can also catch the ball. They seem to love him at the point of attack, which is going to be very good for this run game, um, which is also going to be good um, for when he's in the game and, and maybe giving Thayer Munford a little help on the left side to keep Dwayne Haskins or Joe Burrow clean. Props to Luke Farrell for winning the tight end job. Rashad Berry's still in the mix. He had some injuries the last week of spring. And also Kevin Wilson was talking about Jeremy Ruckert. I think they have concerns about a, a freshman coming in and trying to block at tight end. They said he's a guy who needs to grow, but they don't want him to put on too he was Kevin Wilson said something about I don't want him to like come on and put on too much weight and like have a back problem. Huh. You know, like we gotta like ease his body into it. He was talking very much like A, he likes the group of tight ends. They're gonna have four tight ends in the fall. Farrell, Ruckert, Barry, and Jake Hausman. He said for the first time, I think we're going to have a good group, not just like one guy. Yeah. And then he also was sort of talking about, not quite, but almost like the idea like Luke Farrell's the blocking tight end and Jeremy Ruckert's the catching tight end. And so I think obviously you're going to use guys in different matchups, but I think, um, I think Marcus Baugh just wasn't that kind of guy. Rashad Berry wasn't that kind of guy. But I think like if you want to like ground and pound a little bit more with the tailbacks in the fall and they have the backs to do it, I think they're really going to like Luke Farrell as a blocker. I actually have a question from uh, our our guy, Cynical Negro, at NW Drone 410, talking about tight ends. He asks, since receiving core is still probably going to be, his words, meh, is this the year they finally start using the tight end in the passing game more? And you Ooh, to- a tried and true question. Yes. Uh, no, I don't think so. No. I mean, we thought last year was going to be the year they were going to use the tight end because Kevin Wilson at Indiana liked to throw to the tight end. They so, threw but, the I tight mean, end a lot in the spring game last year. I mean, Marcus Ball, like, caught the game-winning pass against Penn State. So, like, they did throw 
Marcus Ball wound up as a pretty important cog in the offense. I actually think the tight end will be less involved in the offense this year. Doesn't like going to the blocking tight end, if that's what you want to label Luke Farrell as, kind of suggest that? Like we, we're, we're pretty confident in our receivers and our H-backs that you go ahead and do your blocking thing and we'll throw the ball to the other guys. Yeah. And I think, I think it might be, it's, which is not a bad way to operate. And again, Kevin Wilson didn't say that. And he, he was basically saying like Luke Farrell's like right now, not as good of a pass catcher as Marcus Ball. Cause he was saying like Marcus Ball was like a receiver. He said Marcus Ball ran routes like a receiver, put his foot in the ground and made cuts and like got open like a receiver would. So that's like a, I think Kevin Wilson really liked the way Marcus Ball came on catching the ball last year. So it's a high bar. Um, but again, the, the leading tight end right now is a block first guy. So I think your point is well taken. And I just looked at the stats real quick. Marcus Ball, fourth most catches last season, fourth most touchdowns, 28 catches, five touchdowns. That's fourth most among all the receivers last year. I mean, that's pretty good for, for tight end at Ohio State. Here, yeah. Yes. Two more questions and then, well, no, I can't, I can't get to that question. That's like, it's a, it's not a quarterback question, but it's too complicated. Um, all right. I'm going to, I'm going to end it with this one, unless we have other things that people want to say. We could talk, like Tony Alford talked about the running backs. You know what's up with the running backs and we didn't talk to Zach Smith. So we can talk receivers more next week. I apologize, but track calls, man. It's all right. It's all good. People Listen, understand. I'm a dad first, podcaster second. What are you third? <laughs> I don't know. A McDonald's customer? Where does where does a uh, sports writer factor into the rundown? Oh, yeah, no, eleventh, <laughs> way down. Um, all right, Scott Duda again. We'll end with him. What's your curly fry position? Have you discussed it on a previous podcast? If not, why not? I feel like the concept is good, but when I have them, I realize a regular fry would do just as well. The curly just seems unnecessary. Am I missing something? That is literally one, two, three, four, five questions about curly fries in one tweet. We could, I could talk for like 20 minutes about curly fries. I have a go to a track meet. You have two minutes. Okay. Curly fries are only necessary if they don't taste like regular French fries. If they're like the kind they have at Roosters where they're just almost curly for the sake of being curly, but they taste like a regular French fry, it's unnecessary. Need, need to have it have a slight flavor change up. Like Arby's. Exactly. Arby's is the prototype of what curly fries need to be. Anyone, whoever else tries to do them that doesn't do like, them like Arby's is doing them wrong. I think maybe. Strongest take you ever had on this. Maybe that might be the best. Yeah. That might be the most reasoned. I mean, like that's not. That is a great point about curly fries. If you're curly just for the sake of being curly, what is the freaking point? I need a flavor change. I mean, how could you argue with that? No, I agree. I was I was about to disagree, but then I forgot what Rooster's curly fries were, and I forgot it was just like the normal kind of yellow fry that is just curly for no other reason. Yeah, but Arby's. Yeah, yeah I agree. Like you want a little. Uh, I don't know, seasoning on them yeah. or, or like a little, little, uh, like breading almost. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know the way to describe it, how the flavor is different from Arby's curly fries versus like Rooster's curly fries. But it is, it's just a seasoning. It's a little kick to it. But I also do think, cause I think the curl at times can lead to a sogginess. Yes. And so if, if you're risking that, You've got to give something more than just the straight potato flavor. Because again, if a straight potato flavor was best done in a curl, all fries would be curly. And they're not. They're sticks. Right. If, if I could be guaranteed that every fry in a batch of curly fries were the spirally ones that almost form like a tube. 
Yeah. I would eat those, but you get, like, if you have a thing of, like, with, like, 20 french fries in them, like, six of them are like that, and the rest are just, like, broken off, just look like little curl pieces. Well, although there's the occasional one that looks like sort of the design of an atom where it looks like they, it's, like, four different circles that are, like, all meshing or whatever. It just, it doesn't look like a tube, I but it also physics. is not broken off. It's, like, it's almost like you smash two two or three tubes together to create a super fry. Do you know what I mean? I'm in for super fry. If, if the, the fact that Tim Bielek just compared a curly fry to an atom and then coined the term super fry means we're done here. Yep. Um, we're not going to get any better than that. <laughs> yeah. So listen, so part of this too is that this is not just our spring game wrap up because we did a spring game wrap up like the minute the spring game ended. If you have not listened to that, and I'll be honest, not as many have, of you have listened to that as I would think. Really? That no, th- those numbers, the spring game, post spring game podcast that we put up Saturday evening, little down. Mm. Numbers a little down from our normal stellar Buckeye Talk audience. So if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to that for some reason, finish. Well, we're done here. We're done. So you can turn it off now. I'm just going to like say the thing I say at the end, <laughs> but go back and listen to that. Okay. Because that includes quarterback talk. And you're not getting any more quarterback talk here because I have a track meet to go to. You're going to get quarterback talk out the wazoo next week. It might be two hours of quarterback talk next week. I'm going to be on the phone. Because I'll be in God's greatest city, Philadelphia. All right, we're going to come to Philadelphia to do okay. it. We'll meet in the middle. We can meet in Harris. We can meet like in Pittsburgh. We'll meet in like some mountain park in the Allegheny Forest. Yeah, so from a rest stop in the, in the mountains of Pennsylvania next week, we'll do Buckeye Talk. In the meantime, make sure you listen to the spring game one. We're going to keep writing these Buckeye takes. Do we want to have, do we want to explain a little fight we've already had about Buckeye Take? We had a fight? Yeah, we had a fight about it. Yeah, this morning, uh, you guys a little text back and forth. I, we created Buckeye Take. Oh, that I wrote I, too long? I, I said, I said in the intro, the first Buckeye Take, which I wrote about the H-backs, I said, this is a 300 to 400 word column. It's a quick hit. It's like an opinion on Buckeye Talk, but it's written out. It's 300 to 400 words. I said it in the explainer of what this thing is. Bill, how many words did you write on your first take? 702. Seven. <laughs> Bill Landis just has too many thoughts. He can't be contained. You went double. That's well, two takes. I, I I copied it and pasted it to get the word count. And I was like, oh, this is long. Let me see what Doug's was. And yours is like 370. You nailed it. <laughs> and so you edited it down to under 400. Or no, you just posted it. No, I just it posted it. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. So um, we're going to continue with the Buckeye takes. Read those. We're going to continue. We have a lot of stories off these assistant coaches. We're going to keep writing. We did draft videos on all 11 of Buckeyes that went to the combine that we think maybe could be drafted. So we're going to have coverage of Ohio State leading up to the NFL draft next week. And we'll come back next week with a major, big-time quarterback breakdown Buckeye talk. And who knows, by then, maybe Joe Burrow will have transferred and we'll have all all kinds of new things to talk about. Or he'll be named the starter. Or be named the starter. We're getting hammered for being pro Haskins, man. We'll for talk real? about it next week. Where? Hammered. In the comments? comments? Someone whose Twitter handle I can't repeat because it's uh, offensive. Uh, said we were shills for Dwayne Haskins. Really? And we asked if we were getting paid by him. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I've had people comment on both my passing charts, you know, saying negative things about Haskins' performance and promoting Burrow's performance. I think I have muted all those people because I'm all, I mostly am getting stuff from uh, Haskins people. Cause like right, like during the game, people were like, we've seen like the, the good solid running quarterback before we need a guy with a super arm. We did, we want Haskins. We did a poll after the game who will be the starter and Joe Burrow was the overwhelming winner. It was like 50, 54% Burrow, 
40, low 40s Haskins and then I think a little bit of Martell. Wow, this is going to be a good podcast next week. Yeah. Okay, that'll be good. Uh, in the meantime, thank you guys for listening to Buckeye Talk. Again, read our stuff at cleveland.com slash OSU. Follow us on Twitter at Buckeye Talk Pod, at Bill Landis 25, at Tim Bielek, at Doug Maurice. I feel like the Buckeye Talk Pod Twitter handle should maybe be, maybe be Buckeye Talk Pod 25. Cause you created it. If you just put a 25 at the end of all your Twitter handles, how many votes? Uh, it was like, I checked last week and it was like 3,000 votes. Really? And it's 52% Burrow, 41 Haskins, 6 Tate. I don't know about that. You know what that's going to lead to? A stellar Buckeye talk. Yeah. We're just going to make you wait a week. Thanks to you guys for hanging with us. We'll talk to you soon. We got through without a lacrosse practice, by the way. And that was Buckeye Talk.